Pulse Audio Podcast Network. What is up, herstory buffs of all shapes and sizes and genders and sexual identities? Because we love all y'all. It is Another episode of Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast where two longtime besties with breasties drink wine <laughs> and chat about women from herstory you probably haven't heard of because we're taking whining super seriously. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. Thank you so much for joining with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we're so excited to record. I have had a weird ass week. And so I've got some like manic energy that I'm excited to pour all into badass babes. Yeah. I mean, you've been kind of manic the last few times. So it's been a struggle. We'll see. It's, uh, it's been a struggle, but I'm trying to channel the energy productively into podcasting and complaining Ooh. about the patriarchy and <laughs> how hard it is to be a woman. I don't, my story is. Actually, not like terrible this this time. So we're good. My story is a bummer, but it's not patriarchy heavy. Okay. Yeah, mine's not either. Like the things that happen to this woman are not like patriarchy based. Sweet, sweet. You know what? We talk about the patriarchy way too much. It's nice to have an episode that's just about the ladies and not about the ladies overcoming sexist bullshit. Yeah. Just about them being awesome. And overcoming other things. Yes. So, um, Kelly is going to introduce our wine this week, and I'm yes. very excited. Yes. Yes. Let's okay. do these. Let's do these. Uh, <laughs> we're probably annoying everyone. Chipmunks! All right. So, we are drinking... Let's see. Let's see if I can pull this up. We are drinking Thorn Clark Shotfire Barossa Shiraz 2016. I think this is our first Shiraz, isn't it? I think it might be. Yeah. Because I don't really like it. (laughs) Uh, So it says, aims for refinement and achieves a supple balance of ripe plum and currant fruit against a range of sweet spices and fine tannins. Lingers gently and expressively. I would not say it lingers gently. Like, I feel like the end after I take a sip is kind of like a punch more than like oh it lingers gently like no this wine is kind of like a cat when it shows you its belly and you start petting it it's like really nice and and soft tax you yes because when you initially drink it you're like oh okay oh shit like it kind of bites you on the back end honestly literally sometimes if i had a burger with this i would be really happy but drinking it on on its own it's intense it's an intense wine, and we acknowledge it, and we appreciate it, but maybe it's not the best sipping wine for a couple gals who are just trying to get drunk on herstory. Right. So. So, I also have a special announcement. Mm. Um, so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into my voice. As opposed to a normal announcement? Yes, this is a okay. special announcement. Super special. Hold on. <laughs> I realize like what I wrote is so stupid. Do it. Do it. <clears throat> it's only stupid because of your insecurities and yeah, because yeah, the yeah. man's trying to keep you down. Herstory fans, brace yourself for the dark and strange. It is the time of year where witches and goblins roam, and when we here at Whining About Herstory delve into the dark women from the past. Join us for our first horror-filled episode Monday, October 7th. So, if you can't get it, we're going to do... Halloween themed 
episodes for the month of October. Felonious females. As Emily likes to call it. Yes. Um, so yeah, if you're not, we're going to, you know, kind of start out not super dark, but I have a feeling by the end we'll probably have a murderess or two in there. So if you're not super into that, you know, we'll, tr- we'll try and do a disclaimer before the episode. Otherwise, just, you know, join us after October. But please come back if you do leave. You know, I know you were anxious about that, but that was hot. Thanks. That was very sexy and empowering, and I loved it. Good. You should be proud. So, uh, here's to our favorite part. Well, probably second favorite part. I know your favorite part is thanks at the end. Yeah. You love it. But uh, do you have something you'd like to cheers to? Cheers to my husband and our friend being badasses and replacing my basement flooring. Also, along the home improvement line uh my epic being done fighting with the permit office well we'll see my epic tale at the permit office (laughs) has a new development i was finally able to submit my application it's i don't know if it's approved but i was able to submit my fucking paperwork so cheers to home improvement cheers Ooh, that's that was nice. good. <laughs> I'm drinking out of the unpugged shot glass, which I think is very appropriate considering I'm feeling quite unhinged. Yes. I saw that shot glass in my cupboard and was like, I think Emily's going to do this one today. <laughs> yeah. No, she was like, I was telling her about my week and it was just kind of one of those manic emotional dumps. And uh, she's like, unpugged today and i'm like oh you know me so well (laughs) i'm I'm not even insulted you hit the nail right on the head that's funny so i believe i'm starting i believe i'm fine with that (laughs) we'll just just go with it see where it leads us it's terrible because i edit our episodes and i should remember and i just kind of don't see i'm behind on the blogs if i was actually blogging regularly i would probably remember because i try to do the blogs in the same way we do the episode Mm -hmm. i was very productive last sunday so i woke up immediately started editing our episode finished it and then immediately dove in my to my research for i know whenever you're done because i get the email to our joint email account Mm -hmm. that says Buzzsprout has finished processing your episode. And I'm like, oh, Emily's done. And you know what? There's no reason for us to get those emails. Nope. <laughs> but I like to let you know so you can be a little proud of right. me. Like, like oh, look, Emily. I do every time. I'm like, oh. Look, Emily did the thing she's Especially supposed to do. Especially when I get do. it like at like 10 a.m. And I'm like, wow, Emily's really on top of her shit. I was very on top of my shit Sunday. It was nice. unsettling. Right. <laughs> I'm like, is this how everyone else feels all the time? So accomplished and productive? No. Well, at least I don't feel accomplished and productive. That's okay, because we can be unaccomplished and unproductive together, except when it comes to this podcast. Yeah. Then we're a little bit productive. We're killing it a little bit. Just a little. Just a hint of killing. Just a hint. Just a hint of dark violence. (laughs) That's next week. All right. And the month of October. Well, Kelly, do you want to start us off with our first badass babe? I will. Bring it on. So I'm going to set the scene for you. Mm-hmm. It's 1928. The setting is Thornton Township High School, which isn't far from the train line that serves Harvey, Illinois. As a 16-year-old Betty Robinson was running, there was no way she was going to catch the train before it pulled out of the station. Robinson's biology teacher, Charles Price, a former track athlete, was sure she had left too late to, to board the train. On a winter's day in Chicago in 1928, it would be a bitterly cold wait for the next train. Oh, Jesus. Don't talk about winter. Right. It's just stop the story. We're done. <laughs> Quote, 
When he got into the train as the doors closed, he was really surprised to find this young woman, Betty, sitting right next to him, says a biographer. So he knew that he had someone really, really special on his hands. Betty, who came from the small town of Riverdale just south of Chicago, thought nothing of racing for the train, but that small moment that afternoon was the improbable beginning to a career of of meteoric sporting success and a scarcely believable comeback from near tragedy. If a Hollywood screenwriter had dared present her story as a screenplay, the hapless hack would have been would have been let near us would never have let been that let near a studio again but it's all true betty babe robinson may be the most remarkable olympic athlete you have never heard of betty babe robinson when i called her a badass babe i did not mean that like literally but i'm loving this right so born on august yeah that's good Born on August 1911, Betty Robinson grew up as a good-natured teenager who liked to play guitar, act in school plays, and run in races at social events organized by her school or her church. Her father was a banker, and her family was very supportive and was always delighted to see her exceed, apparently without effort, at whatever she tried. She knew she was fast and and was intensely competitive, but she never imagined doing anything with her natural abilities, and she definitely didn't think of, like, competing in running. Um, partially because that wasn't really a thing for women at that time. Like competitive running and yeah. track was not a thing not for a thing. women. Well, it's so hard to run in those dresses, right? And God forbid a woman wear pants right? or shorts. It even oh says, my God! In an interview with the Los Angeles Times in 1984, Betty said, "Quote: I had no idea that women even ran then. I grew up a hick." End quote. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that that's the other thing is you know she's growing up south of Chicago, so she's probably not. Like, you know, in the know on things. Yeah. It's like things start in the cities and then they slowly trickle out to the surrounding communities. Right. So there was no track team at Thornton Township High. But when Price, the teacher, um, because he was also the track coach, suggested to, to Betty that she that he she let him time her as she ran down one of the school corridors. She didn't need much convincing. She was an exuberant natural, and it is still remarkable that she was soon taking on the very best women sprinters in the country. In March, only a few weeks after being discovered, Betty made her race debut in a regional event. Finishing second to 20-year-old Helen Feike, the U.S. record holder at the 100 meters. With the worst last name in the world. Right. She was promptly invited to join the Illinois Athletic Women's Club. So, So this is just a few weeks after, and she's, you know seconds behind the record holder the u.s record holder at the time so she's just kind of been running for fun doesn't even right? know it's a thing her teacher happens to see her run after a train and was and like catch let's up. time you and then was like oh shit you're fast <laughs> and in like two weeks she's like i'm one of the best in the country right holy shit that and i think kinda- part of it is she's still just doing it for fun yeah you know? like she just enjoys it well she's not like i'm training to be in the olympics she's like i like running right exactly. i'm already insane running yeah. is awful <laughs> her second hundred meter race in chicago so she's a sprinter if you, can, mm-hmm. you know get that which is what i did too her second hundred meter race in chicago on june 2nd Robinson beat Feike and recorded a time of 12 seconds, beating the official world record of 12.2 seconds. Holy shit! The time, however, was not ratified owing to wind assistance, um, which means they think that the wind was blowing in the direction the runner was running, so it like gave them an extra little benefit. 
So it didn't count as a world it record? It did not count. What? Who can control the right. weather? If um, I could control the weather, we would never have winter. Um, however, a month later, Robinson traveled to Newark, New Jersey for the Olympic trials. Where they don't have wind. <laughs> Racing three times in one hour, she came in second in the final and was selected to re- represent the United States in the 1928 Olympics in Amsterdam. What? Yep. This story is moving so quickly. Like, two seconds oh, ago, yeah, no, she was that's, running that's after That's just how train. it is. Oh, my God. She's 16. Oh, my goodness. Her timing could not have been better. Before 1928, the Olympics, the Olympics hadn't included track and field events for women. Women could swim. They could even compete in archery, but they couldn't run. Because Gertrude Ederle comp- competed in the Olympics. Exactly. Callback. Right. The crossing from New York to Amsterdam on the SS President Franklin took nine days, and Betty recalled that she loved every minute of it, even training on the makeshift track that ran around the deck of the ship. There were 18 female track and field athletes in the U.S. Olympic team of 280. Sorry, I had to swallow. (laughs) The team included people like swimmer Johnny Westmuller, um, who would win his fourth and fifth gold at this event, and apparently went on to play Tarzan. Good for him. So that's cool. Swimming um, is really good. Like, it's the same right? as swinging through vines. It's it's just the water version of that. So it is difficult now to appreciate how well-known Betty had become in such a short time, but it is clear she was already a star. Louis Nixdorf, who was also a member of the... who was a member of the U.S. lacrosse team, kept a journal of his trip and noted on July 13th, quote, After spoiling a few pictures, we finally succeeded in getting Wes Mueller... Joy Ray, who's an Olympic bronze medalist, Helen Meany, who's a three-time Olympic swimmer, and Babe Robinson, Betty, in some pretty f- pretty fair snapshots. So it's clear that the 16-year-old was certainly in an illustrious sporting company. So she's going from... Like no ju- one. Just outside yeah. of Chicago to chilling with Olympic champions on a boat. Right. One of, one of her biographers said... That the U.S. team got a little bit carried away on the ship. There was a little bit of booze and there was a lot of food, especially they were partial to ice cream and really indulged. Oh, my God. So some of them ended up gaining an awful lot of weight. Um, That's fucking funny. Perhaps because Betty was only 16, the ice cream didn't seem to slow her down. You know, good metabolism, being young. Anyways, she was the only U.S. runner to qualify for the final of the 100 meters. Because she was fueled by ice cream. Yeah. Ice cream fuels the soul and the body. Yeah. So there was f- so there were four women seeking to r- four American women. No. Yes. There is an unknown number of women. No, there were there was four American <laughs> women seeking that 100 meter race and she was the only one that made it through. Wow. And I'm sure all of those women had been training right? from it's, like it's the birth. Like they ran out of that vaginal canal like right. <laughs> like the walls were closing in. <laughs> Um, so (laughs) Betty was lining up against three Canadians and two Germans. She was focused primarily on one of the Canadians, 24-year-old Fanny Rosenfeld, who had set numerous national track and field records in the Olympic trials and who had beaten Betty in one of the heats. Both women had won their semifinals in a time of 12.4 seconds. Like, both of them hit that exact time? Oh, that's intense. Um, Betty may have seemed calm going into the final preternaturally so for one so experienced and young she was still 23 days shy of her 17th birthday 
Is there an age requirement for the Olympics nowadays? No. I, the, I looked this up and the youngest person, she's still the youngest person to ever run in this event, but the youngest person to ever complete in the Olympics was like 14. Okay. I thought... It, it I, might be like 14 and up. Because I... Uh, I remember when the Olympics were in China, there was some kind of controversy about how old the gymnasts were. I was going to say, some, that's usually the youngest age group, I would say, is the yeah. gymnasts. Well, you, you're you only that flexible for so long. And then you, you right. know, the, the despair and the existential crisis set in. You just stiffen up and everything starts hurting. <laughs> so, yeah, while externally she may, she may have seemed calm, the fact that she arrived at the starting line with two left shoes betrayed her nerves she had to send someone back to the team's base on the ship to get the right shoes and barely made it to the starting line in time she even considered running barefoot that sounds like something i would do like i've got everything planned i'm prepared for everything and then i wear two left shoes because something has to go wrong and it has to be the dumbest thing possible right so every woman in the race knew that she was making history because, like I said, this is the first time women are running in the Olympics. And the occasion was too much for some of these women. So there were six. Remember, there's only six on the starting line. Right. Yeah. From a crouch position, the starting blocks were not used until 1948. So this is 20 years before starting blocks were a thing. There were two false starts, which led to the disqualification of Canadian Myrtle Cook and German Lena Schmidt. Oh, man. Cook burst into tears while Schmidt shook her fist at the starter and apparently swore revenge. Yeah, That's I, what I would. would do too. That being at the Olympics, you most people have been training their whole lives oh, yeah. for this and then to not get to compete because of technical bullshit. Right. Biggest fear ever. Um, so now we're down to four remaining runners. <laughs> Yep. Bet- That's so sad. Right. Betty was in the lane next to Rosenfeld, which is exactly how she wanted it because she wanted to have her biggest threat in her line of vision. Germans, Ger- Germany's Erna Steinberg was on Robin uh, Betty's immediate left and the other Canadian, Ethel Smith, was two lanes over. So she was one of the middle two runners. I like how they didn't just consolidate lanes, like they kept everyone in their right. exact lanes. Like, well, there's going to be an empty lane here where the girl who swore revenge was, right. but we're going to just stay um, where we are. So Steinberg, the the one that she's like worried about. No, that's Rosenfeld. Steinberg is the other German. Steinberg bowed, bounded out of her crouch at the start of the gun with Betty right on her heels. Halfway, Rosenfeld, the one she's actually concerned about, who had started poorly, drew level with the now leading Betty. But the young American kept her focus as the two powered across the finish line, both briefly raising their arms in victory. Footage of the race shows Rosenfeld glancing anxiously over at Betty, who faces confidently forward, smiling as if she just had the time of her life. Oh, shit. I'll post that picture on the blog. Like, she doesn't know she won. She's just happy like and yeah it's so it's a picture and she's looking over and then yeah she the other one like betty's just like straightforward smile on her face like it's a really cool picture have you ever seen those videos that kind of warn against like don't celebrate too soon where like right. someone's oh, running this is a thing they're two feet from the finish line they start waving and their they, arms and, and someone trip. comes out of no someone else comes out of fucking nowhere and takes first and the other person's always like what it's like, yeah, it's like don't slow down because if you're raising yeah. your arms are slowing down yeah well here's the thing just fucking finish the race 
And these videos are never like middle schoolers or no, high schoolers it's or professionals, professional athletes. I'm like, you should know you're competing against the best of a, of the best. Never well, let your and guard I'm sure down. I always think like, oh, I'm so far ahead. Like, it's like, no, you never know. Because some people do. They they save all their energy until the end. Take advice from someone who lives in constant fear with her anxiety. Never let your guard <laughs> down <laughs> ever. Never assume right. you're okay. <laughs> So after they crossed the finish line, a biographer quotes, and the Canadians were celebrating. The Canadians were throwing their girl up in the air, and even Betty had it figured that she had come in second. And she was thrilled with that until the numbers went up, and she had won the first gold to be given to a track and field woman. Oh, my God. The Canadians, however, felt Rosenfeld had won and lodged a complaint, but the judge's original decision was upheld, and Betty Robinson was an Olympic champion and a a hugely popular one back in Chicago. Chicago Tribune reporter William Shire wrote, quote, an unheralded, pretty, blue-eyed, blonde woman from Chicago became the darling of the spectators when she flew down the cinder path, her golden locks flying to win. That's cool writing, but But can we just point out, whenever these women are written about, it's always about how they look. It started... From a lamp de gouge who was like, oh, you know, she's such a beautiful woman standing up there right. getting her, you know, getting executed or whatever. <laughs> such it's, bullshit. It's like, stop. If I die, because you're going to be my funerary cult. I'm going to be your funerary Talk cult about leader. everything else but how I, like, I mean, if you want to throw in, yeah, she was, she was okay looking. But like, talk about everything else I did in my life. I'm going to write a page about what an incredible person you are. And then like in the footnotes, write, and an animal in the sack. <laughs> Just not, so not you know. Easy on the eyes. She was the hottest piece of ass to walk this <laughs> earth. I'm going to get like real inappropriate. Redetailed. Yeah. And everyone's going to be like, did her husband write that? Like, no. no. <laughs> it was me. That's funny. I'm also going to wear pink to your funeral yes. and then just like make a spectacle of myself. Have some, have a little badge that says as the leader. funerary cult director <laughs> as the leader of her funerary cult i know kelly would have wanted me to have free drinks this whole <laughs> afternoon there's no bar make one <laughs> kelly would have wanted it this way <laughs> it's in her will no Mas- it's not it is moscato for days <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry, I didn't mean to make you like laugh so hard you died. It's so dry in here. Um, this wine makes your mouth dry too, though. It kind of does. I know I've been sipping, even though I'm not a fan. So six decades later, Betty was interviewed for a book with the title Tales of Glory, an Oral History of the Summer Olympic Games, told by America's gold medal winners. That's the name of the book. You know, you know what it is when you open it up. Um, and this is how she remembered her race. So this is six decades later, her talking about the race. Quote, I can remember breaking the tape, but I wasn't sure that I'd won. It was so close, but my friends in the stands jumped over the railing and came down and put their arms around me. And then I knew I'd won. Then when they raised the flag, I cried. End quote. In post-race footage available on YouTube, Betty smiles into the camera, looks bewildered and confused, and then smiles again. A smile that only, like, a teenager could have. Someone innocent and just, like pure happiness because this was not her world she was just running after a train and now she's at the olympics within like a month (laughs) yeah and she and she was a star betty also raced in the four by 100 meter relay on her team she anchored the team but for anyone who doesn't know the anchor is usually the the strongest person yep and it's the last person it's the last person and it's the best yep 
Save the best um, for last. But ha- she unfortunately had too much to do against the favored Canadians. And Myrtle Cook, the Canadian that got disqualified from the 100 meter, so distraught after disqualification, brought her team home. Betty, however, did not seem too bothered by getting us over. Honestly, I respect the hell out of that because all of these women are making history because women have not allowed been allowed to run in the Olympics. And I kind of love that Myrtle. Was it Myrtle? Yes. I love that she was like, I'm pissed and I'm going to fucking and use she wasn't, that rage. She wasn't even the one that like shook her fist. She was the one that started crying when she got disqualified. Oh, I thought she was the revenge no. girl. <laughs> well, still, she again, she's channeling that energy yeah. into something productive. Right. Um, General Douglas MacArthur, um, who was the president of the American Olympic Committee at the time, was so impressed with Betty that he invited her to com- accompany him to other competition and re- competitions and receptions he also heaped praise upon her in his report citing quote that sparkling combination of speed and grace by elizabeth robinson which might have rivaled even artemis herself on the heights of olympus i like that because he didn't talk about like beauty he's like nah she's fast she's fast to the point of being godlike and she's graceful and i'm going to compare her to another badass female god lady and so am I, actually. This was the same year that Amelia Earhart became the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. So just as she was a trailblazer, Betty was a trailblazer for female athletes. They're conquering the land and the skies. Right. Robinson and the rest of the team were greeted by huge crowds when their ship docked in New York. A, tipper ta- a ticker tape parade. A tipper tape. I don't know what that would be. A tipper tape. I've always, we've talked about this multiple times because quite a few people have gotten ticker tape parades. I want a ticker tape parade. I know they're not a thing anymore, but I want it anyways. I want. That's t- what I want for my funeral. <laughs> I want a ticker tape parade, but I want it all to be made out of hemp paper. Yes. So it's not as yep. environmentally destructive. Or uh, bamboo. What if I, good I just get stoned at your funeral? Because by there the time go. you die, it's going to be, be legal, legal everywhere. Sorry, my you phone's know. buzzing. On the table, like I'm some kind of jackass. (laughs) No, you got to put it in the front of your pants. So when it vibrates, it's like a nice little surprise. Uh, Not why we're podcasting. (laughs) Oh, Oh, I think I just got a text. Oh, God, it's a phone call. I'm going to leave now. (laughs) Um, So they got a ticker tape parade. um, And there were speeches and lunches. They got to meet superstar Babe Ruth. Babe meets yeah. Babe! So Babe Robinson got to meet Babe Ruth. Love it. Um, and by and by, Betty also celebrated her 17th birthday. Um, after that, she went back to Chicago um, with for more parades and more speeches and finally made it home to Riverdale, where there was yet another parade and an estimated 20,000 people turning up to cheer for their return champion. And, you know, when you're from a small town, I'm guessing it's a huge deal. Yeah. Um. She married some redhead right. named Archie, no, who also know. lived in Riverdale. But Veronica and Betty, and different Betty, were super pissed. Right. Um, <laughs> the town had banded together to buy her a diamond watch, and she was given a silver cup by her high school. A diamond watch? Right. Wh- how How do you make that? Does it just have diamonds in I think it's in diamond, it? like, in, in the, the watch band, usually. Oh, that's sexy. Right. That's glamorous. So Betty, who had initially seen running as a lark, began to take what she'd accomplished a little bit more serious. However, she still had to return to high school for her final year. She did keep running, though. Like, she kept, she kept good, running. Good, good. Um, <laughs> but she did also go on to, to begin a degree in physical education at Northwestern University. 
Um, she had an idea that she wanted to coach the 1936 Olympic Games, but before that, of course, she had her sight, her sights set on the hundred meter tighter title to middle to turter. defend. Yeah, right. Um, Words are hard when you've been drinking. Yeah, she had her sights set on the defense of her hundred meter meter title. Jesus. <laughs> I in 1932 so Olympics, which which was held on the home turf in Los Angeles. Ooh. She continued to run, um, even in college, setting records in 1929 in the 50-yard dash at 5.8 seconds and the 100-yard dash at 11.4 seconds in Soldier Field, Chicago, on a murder- murderously hot July day. I... <laughs> I heard murder, and I'm like, where is this going? Because I am alarmed. Murderously hot. Fred Steers, chairman of the National Committee on Women's Athletics, probably thought he was being complimentary when he described the, quote, most sensational performances of the meat from the slim, smiling Chicago girl who runs like a man, end quote. Stop. I like that. The source that I got this from even says, like, he thought he was being complimentary. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. It's compliment. You know, when women are being written about, it's about their appearance. And if they're really good, they're doing something like a man. Yeah. And so she's like, oh, this girl was, you know, slim and pretty. And she runs like a man. So she's doing good. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Well, and it goes hand in hand with the you throw like a girl. Well, why does that have to be a bad thing? Right. So in March 1939, she went on to set more world records, one for the 60-yard dash at 6.9 seconds and the 70-yard dash at 7.9 seconds. She was in top form and training was going well. Then on June 28th, the unthinkable happened. No. No. Okay. Thank you so much, Kelly, for sharing the story. It has been a pleasure. It's my turn now. It was a hot day and Robinson wanted to cool down. She had been forbidden from swimming by her coaches on the grounds that the activity used different muscles. You know, it's funny. Now they want you to do both because it helps. Oh, when I swam, we had yeah, they dry to, land. Right? Well, we would run and push exactly ups because and all it's that. not different muscles. You're building like in a, all your in muscles. A little, like I mean, in swimming, you use more arms, but I mean, in the end, it, most of the power is coming from your legs in both situations. Well, and the so. other thing is, it's about conditioning and endurance. Like right. I was so, a good. So swimmer. how the times have changed between yeah. then and now. But it's like I was a good swimmer. I was a terrible runner. Right. But running probably would help my endurance. Like cross country it. Yeah. God, running sucks. I'm trying to get into running because I'm like, I see people like jogging outside. I'm like, I wish I could be one of those people. And I finally accepted that I actually have to run. I'm walking. (laughs) I'm a walker. Well, I've been doing it on the treadmill for like 30 minutes, so I'm I'm getting there. Yeah, that's good. I'm working on it. Little Um, steps. So keep telling me about the tragedy. Back to the hot day and she wanted to cool down. Her cousin Will, an experienced pilot, assured her that it would be cooler up among the clouds. And maybe for a time it was. The takeoff was uneventful, but before the plane had reached an altitude of 600 feet, it became clear something was wrong. The engine seemed to stall and the plane went into a nosedive, plunging into a marshy field. People were quickly on the scene and what they saw was horrifying. Both bodies had been mangled in the crash and neither was conscious. One of Betty's legs was twisted, broken in three places. Her left arm had been shattered. There was a deep gash over her right eye. Betty appeared to be either dead or dying. Her condition was so bad that the man who pulled her from the wreckage placed her in the trunk of his car and drove her to a nearby undertaker. Apparently that was a thing. People would find dead bodies and bring them to the undertaker for money. It was a thing. 
I like delved a little bit into it because I was like, why the fuck would that guy do this? And I'm like, I went down this like huge rabbit hole of how it was a thing, but I'm not going to get into it right now. History is horrifying. Thankfully, The Undertaker did not act too hastily. And while Betty had the badly broken leg, hip, arm, and was suffering from internal injuries, she was not dead or dying. So she nosedived in a small aircraft and was not dead. Nope. So the place this man had brought her to, quote, was an old people's home because he had a friend there who was an undertaker and he thought I was dying. So that's literally what Betty said. So she got to comment on it. Right. Okay. Later. (laughs) Later. Stop. This is awful. Oh, uh, so actually, I guess I did leave this in here. So it's a quote from a different biographer that says, quote, her son said he thought in those days people would drive around and pick up bodies and actually get paid for bringing them in. I went through the papers from those years and you can't believe the number of plane crashes. Somebody was always trying to break a record going the furthest or flying the fastest. Apparently a lot of people stupidly thought they could fly and took planes up. It was like going out for a Sunday drive if you had a few bucks. I barely trust commercial pilots to fly me safely, let alone being like, I can, it's like driving a car in the air. It's fine. It's fine. Um, so while Robin, while Betty wasn't in imminent need of an undertaker, her condition was fairly critical. Yeah. And so when she, well, she did get brought to another hospital um, where they administered x-rays and inserted silver pins into her damaged leg and applied a cast. Her doctor said, quote, the thigh bone is fractured in several places between the knee and the hip. When it heals, it will probably be a little shorter than the other leg. It will be months before she is able to walk again. And she has a fractured left arm and internal injuries, which may be more serious than what is apparent. They told her that she could probably never run again. Oh, no. Um, So a lot of the newspapers the next day read things like, girl runner will never race again. Or lying almost paralyzed on a cot, Betty Robinson today fought to win the hardest race she ever had. A race in which the Grim Reaper was pacing her. I actually kind of like that one. That's, That's intense. That's dramatic. I respect right. the energy there. Right. So Betty went on to spend 11 weeks in the hospital. Um, they inserted more pins into her smashed leg and her various injuries slowly healed. However, the 1932 Olympics were out of the question. Yeah. Um, and many felt that Betty with her leg now a little bit shorter. I think they said it was about an inch. Oh, my God. Maybe less than. But And she, I mean... So a lot of people were saying she would never compete again and would walk with a limp for the rest of her life. Like, obviously, she's going to walk with a limp for the rest of her life. Well, she's honestly kind of like my dad. You have to get, like, the shoe that's a different size because one of his legs is shorter for a similar reason. Yeah. <laughs> Except not a plane. That was a motorcycle. But, you know. Betty was having none of this. <laughs> yes, told, Betty. She, she would tell people, of course, I am going to run again. Speaking to Betty's granddaughter, Brooke Dwar. She said her grandmother did not like to be told no. She was not a fan of the word impossible. And when told she would not be able to do something, she would find a way to make it happen and surprise those who doubted her. This Get included it. doctors. So that's what her granddaughter said about her. Get it, Betty Babe. I love that. That's amazing. Uh, during the weeks after Betty... Betty finally left the hospital. She, didn't, she often didn't want to get out of bed. Her brother-in-law, however, had different ideas. Every morning, he would wake her up and just go and take her for a walk, says her biographer. Initially, it was just a couple steps, you know, then start going down the street. And then he eventually was like, okay, how about we run a few steps and then run down the street? 
you know, and shortly it was around the block and, you know, and while her recovery was slow and painful and expensive, it was aided greatly by the fact that she had trained so hard prior to the accident. She said later in later years, quote, the doctor said if I hadn't been in such good condition, I wouldn't have come out of it as well as I did. During her recuperation, she found that she could indeed still run. Quote, not as fast as I used to, but fast enough to make a team, she said. Wow. She decided to try for the Olympic team that would travel to Berlin in 1936. So she returned to the IAWC, so the Iowa Athletic Women's... Conference? I don't remember. Competition? Something like that. Collaboration? We'll go with collaboration. Cucumber? <laughs> Any number of C words. <laughs> so basically, she returned and began training again. Um, because of her injury, she was unable to get into the starting crouch, so competing in the individual 100 meter was impossible. So um, she couldn't even crouch down enough to nope. start. Yep. Oh, my God. However, as a member of the 4 by 100 uh, meter relay team, she would not have to crouch as long as she wasn't the first runner. Quote, it was really a struggle to make the team in 1936, and I had to work overtime. But through a combination of determination, skill, and experience, she won her place. She was still only 24, though now the oldest member of the relay team. Yeah, Olympians are not very old. They're usually in their early 20s. Yeah, like you turn 25 and it's like, move over, Grandpa. Right. So while Betty had recovered, um, that was not the only obstacle she ended up facing. While the U.S. Olympic Committee... Oh, I, I forgot. There's a little bit of bullshit patriarchy in here. Damn it. So while, close. While the U.S. Olympic Committee funded the men's track and field team, they told Betty and the other team members that they had to come up with their own travel money. What? Her medical bills had obviously taken a huge toll on the family, and his her father had lost his job, and the Great Depression was in full swing. Oh, my God. She had to pretty much sell everything she owned. She sold all the ribbons and pins she had collected from the 28 games, though she held on to her gold medal. She found work as a secretary and saved what she could. It turned out to be enough. She made it to Berlin, and apparently it was evident that she was happy about it, as the nickna- the New York Times nicknamed her Smiling Betty. Aww. But she wasn't in Berlin to smile. She was there to run. She knew it was likely her last Olympics, said her biographer. She had this feeling that she was meant to be there at this particular moment in time. The German relay team, who had set a world record in their heat, were, was favored to win. And indeed, they had a lead of nine meters coming into the final leg. With Betty just behind for the U.S., but the Germans' last handover was a disastrous. Anchor runner Ilse Dorfelt received the baton smoothly, but then dropped it as she changed from one hand to the other, which is something they tell you never to do. I I did 100 meter relay races and they're like, don't change hands because it's because of, because of, this. of this. Yeah, you're so <laughs> likely to drop it. I, I remember I did track and field for a little bit, and yeah, the baton thing was so stressful because yeah. if, if, so if you drop, drop it, it you're you immediately fucked? disqualified. Yeah. Yep. So the German team it. was immediately disqualified. Betty handed it over to Helen Stevens, who had already won the 100 meter, and the U.S. won at, in 46.9 seconds. Betty had won another Olympic gold and was certain her team would have won even if the Germans had not made the bad handoff. I was going to say, like, she actually was quoted as saying, I wish I wish they, the German women, hadn't dropped the baton. Helen was the faster and we would have won anyways. That's literally what I was just going to say, because when you're at that competitive level, it's not about winning on a technicality. No. It's about the spirit right. of competition and proving you're the best. And if you win on a technicality, 
you're not proving you're the best. You're proving the other person fucked up so royally that it wasn't even a contest. Right. You could have walked the rest of the way. It wouldn't have mattered. Right. In a lot of her interviews, she said that she felt incredibly lucky to be there and to be getting another medal at all. She did add, however, that it had been really hard to watch the 100 meter race and not, you know, be able to compete in it. Right. Well, knowing she would have at least been able to participate had it not been for this right horrible, bizarre accident. Who goes up into a small plane because you're hot? Like, that's insane. And I'm not trying to blame her. I'm I mean, just it was saying, like 1930. I don't know. I'm just saying, like... What else are you supposed to do when you can't swim? Air conditioning, I don't think, was invented yet. But that opportunity, think of an opportunity where you've been, where someone's like, hey, I've got a small plane over there. Do you want to go up for like 10 minutes before your thing? That doesn't happen. I I could ask Dave. He probably would take me up. Oh, my God. Don't do it. Don't do it. Small planes are death. Um, So Betty retired from running after the 1936 games, though she stayed involved in the sport. She was an AAU timekeeper for very many years and was also an active public speaker, um, lecturing at different athletic associations for women and girls to promote women's running. She did eventually marry a businessman named Richard Schwartz, and they had two children together and lived quietly in Glencoe, which is on Chicago's North Shore, where she worked at a hardware store for many years. Good for her. Yeah. In 1977, Robinson was inducted into the USA National Track and Field Hall of Fame. She said, quote, I suppose most Americans don't recognize me. It happened so long ago, I still can't believe the attention I get for something I I did so long ago. End quote. She has yet to be included into the United States Olympic Hall of Fame, though her granddaughter says she was not particularly bothered by the the lack of recognition. Quote, I think her family has been more disappointed than she ever was. Aw. But yeah. hey, we're calling you out US Hall of Fame, right? Like Olympic Hall of Fame. That's bullshit. Come on. Do this. She was the first woman in track to win a gold medal. Right? Like come on. Come on. And then she came back to win another gold medal after having this horrific plane crash. Like seriously, why why are you talking about this? Right. Just um, do it. Robinson got another chance to have one more day in the sun. In 1996, while living in Denver, the then 84 Betty was chosen to carry the Olympic torch for a few blocks as as it made its way across the United States to Atlanta for the Games. Though frail, she refused to allow anyone to to help her carry the heavy torch or even to hold her arm as she made her way along the streets filled one last time with Olympic spirit. I'm gonna cry. That is beautiful. Um, Two years later... At the Olympic memorabilia show in 1998, um, Betty and Olympic discus champion Al Orerter, who were supposed to cut, were supposed to cut the ribbon together. Betty snipped first and apparently quipped, I'm still the fastest. (laughs) Get it, girl. So one of her biographers, his last name was Gergen, admits that despite covering the Olympic Games while a sports writer and a columnist for Newsdays for 40 years, he had never heard of Betty Robinson. He found out about her from her from his daughter, who had become friends with Rob, Rob, with Betty's granddaughter when they both taught at the same school in Massachusetts. He then met with um, Betty's daughter, Jane, who had scrapbooks and clippings that Gergen said w- would fall apart in your hands. Rick Schwartz who is Betty's son, gave him a tour of his mother's suburban Chicago stomping grounds, which is nice. So this guy's job... Who was a sports writer, and he had never heard of her. Yeah, his job is to write about sports and Olympians and 
he'd never heard of her. Yeah. On May 17th, 1999, Betty Robinson died. She was 87. She had been diagnosed with cancer and had been struggling with Alzheimer's for a few years. Mm. She was a trailblazer for a women's sport, though she never saw herself that way. As her granddaughter put it, quote, I think she liked adventure and knew she was doing something different from her peers. I do think she was very grateful and later tried to use her place in history to make an impact for women and athletes. She just loved to run and wanted others to be able to do what they loved to just as she had, end quote. She does remain the youngest woman to to win a gold medal um, in that particular event. At 16? Yep. Okay. She was the fastest woman in the world for a time um, at, with the 12, well, 11.4 eventually. Um, I think the fastest time now is under 10 seconds. I, I looked it up. I had like the whole list, but there was quite a few people between her and the now world record holder. And just because for- it was just like... One second difference. One second difference. One second, like... Well, and if it if it went from, like, 11 to 10, just for perspective, like, 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2... It's like, huge. hundredths of a second matter immensely oh, yeah. in racing. So, like, one second is massive. Right. And, you know, she also recovered from terrible injuries to win a second Olympic gold. Jeez. Um, the story of Betty Robinson's brush with death, however, has taken on a life of its own, and that tends to be what people know about her. And because, like, even when I looked her up to do this, you know, article, a lot of it was Olympic runner comes back from the dead to, you know, win again. And I'm like, what? It's like, no, she never actually, like, died. And that's what that's not what should matter. Like, the fact that she was the first woman to win the 100 meter dash. Like, that's what should matter. Like, yes, it's cool that she had this horrific accident and came back. <laughs> Nothing's cooler than a horrific accident, kid. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like, that's not all she should be remembered for. Right. Like, I just mean, like my balloonist. She shouldn't just be remembered because she burned to death because of her balloon. Wasn't she actually flung for, yeah, from a she, roof like, landed onto on, the she street? She landed on the roof and then her bla- basket tipped over and she tumbled down the roof and fell into the street and died. Yeah, that was... At the very least. There are so many, like, prints out there of that, though. I'm like, why? And then they put it on their tombstone. I was going to say, at the very least, her tombstone should not have Um, had the horrific way she died. It was featured a few years ago on Travel Channel's Mysteries at the Museum. (gasps) I love that show. And on websites including Mental Floss, which lists uh, Betty as number one on the list of seven people whose death notices improved their lives ahead of Mark Twain and Sherlock Holmes. Jesus. Um, She's also featured on TopSecretWriters.com. And like I said, if you Google Betty Robinson and plane crash, it's the first phrase that pops into the search box, which is sad. Like, one, people don't really know who she is. And then two, when you go to look her up, it's not so much about her as, hey, she had this terrible plane crash and came back from the dead, which she didn't die. <laughs> right. I mean, not to defend that, like, compactation of, that's not a word, but I'm going with it, but that way of telling her story, but it is really interesting it's because... The sensational the f- headlines. Well, and-, and if you think about it, what's so incredible about the story is the first half is also happenstance. Right? She was just a really good runner. She didn't she didn't necessarily train to be an Olympian. She was just really good. She was gifted and, you know, she enjoyed it. Right. And that got her so far. But then for her to have to come back from nothing. Right. You know, everyone loves a Phoenix right. and I think, I think underdog that's why story. At, at the beginning, 
you know, the the thing I said about, like, if someone came to Hollywood and preached that, they would just be like, no, because we have so many comeback stories that this would just be another one. I think this it is, like, is I just feel like it's dramatic. so incredible. Well, and the, the beginning is almost unbelievable. Like, if I hadn't been reading, like, biographies and stuff, I would be like, are we sure someone didn't make this up? Well, she was just so good, you know. Like, I mean, yeah, inherently, it's just insane. That's that's amazing. But yeah, I I think I I get why people latch on to that part because first of all, nose diving in an airplane and surviving in oh, of itself is nuts. I thought this was in my notes, but it's not. Her her cousin William, the dr- the pilot, oh, also yeah. survived. Oh, good. I feel really. I was thinking about him, but I was so shocked by what you were right? telling me. I and didn't I, ask. I swear I have like a little like sidebar in my notes about that, but apparently I deleted BT it. dubs. Let me, everyone let me, survived. Roll back up. Yeah, no, he like he obviously had some injuries too, but he wasn't like presumed to be dead or anything. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay. Oh, let's. The just pilot imagine. was taken directly to the hospital. He survived, though years later. His damaged left leg was amputated. Oh, so it is there. Yeah, it's in like little brackets that I skipped. Let's just like unpack that for a moment, though. So he was taken to a hospital. His leg was amputated. That's awful. Years later, his leg was amputated. Not at the time. Oh, okay. Well, she was presumed dead. She's got broken bones all over her body. Right, and she's she had like, put, a, 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 like a big gash in her head. She's put into a trunk. She's not airlifted yeah. and or And some of the stories said flatbed truck too, but more of them said trunk. So I went with trunk. Yeah. But so she's put in a trunk like a fucking right? murder victim. And then victim. brought to like an old folks home because the guy knew the undertaker there. Hey, man. I uh, I brought I you a body. Stole this chick's body from a crash site. Can you give me like forty bucks for right. that? And the guy was like, "Yeah, she's not dead." Damn it! And then, of course, then the undertaker had to take her to a hospital. That was that truck owner's worst day. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Damn it! You're supposed to be dead, woman. I want the how forty bucks. Gonna, how am I gonna pay for Thanksgiving now? <laughs> Damn, uh, that's fucked up. Yes. But I mean, it is an so incredible know, comeback least, story. You know, at least that's not a thing anymore. You know, driving to crash sites and stealing people's bodies. Although something like that does come into play <laughs> in my next story too. No. Yeah. So tune in next week to hear more about weird things happening at death sites Fuck. or potential death sites. I am. I don't know if I'm on board for that. But man, Betty Babe Robinson. All right. Well. My story is not as uplifting as yours, but... It doesn't have all the inspiration. Like, you can hear the... Like, you know when you see, like, people running and it's, like, that inspirational music that I can't think of the tune right now? Dun-dun-dun. Yeah. me. All right. Yeah, no, that. Yeah. I get it. But the story... Literally, running. The story is still really interesting. And normally, I find my women by Googling, like, if there's a certain... No, Eric, shut up. Google is meant to be <laughs> enjoyed. <laughs> but, you know, like I'm looking for a certain um, ethnicity or woman, you know, woman in a certain area. Or right. They're like, hey, let's do a STEM woman. Yeah, just something. Yeah. But the way this woman kind of fell into my lap was interesting. So at my work, we did a website for a veterans memorial. And oh, I love doing that website. 
And actually, my boyfriend has a paver there, him, oh, his he? brother, their cousin, and then their grandfather, because they're all veterans. Oh, wow. That's so cool. we get to like go visit it. It's really cool. But um, I had a meeting with a couple of the gentlemen f- who help with this memorial. And they mentioned this gal and kind of mentioned she had this like illustrious, not so happy honor. And I was like, I'm Def gonna look her up, all right? <laughs> and you know, it was it was cool talking to them because they're just it. The meeting was ninety percent them talking about cool military history versus right. what we were actually there to talk about. That's okay. But those it, meetings are fun versus like when someone's talking about something like really boring, and you're like, "We already finished what we need to discuss. Can I please leave this meeting?" Yeah. Well, and this is this is a cool thing that we're working on versus like right. we make electronics. Let me tell you about insert unintelligible technical words. That's fascinating. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> But, you know, this was really cool. So I am covering Sharon Lane. And if you have heard of her, I would be shocked. Absolutely shocked. I mean, I haven't. I don't know about our listeners, but I haven't. Okay. So Sharon Ann Lane was born on July 7th, 1943 in Zanesville, Ohio. Her family soon moved to Canton, Ohio, where Sharon grew up. She graduated from Canton South High School in June of 1961, and as far any as anyone can tell, she had a typical childhood and upbringing. Okay. There really wasn't much on that. Right. Sometimes our stories are like that. That's kind of how my, my mine was like starting when she was 16. Like, that's where my story started. 90% of the time, if there's nothing interesting in their childhood, it means they turned out to be a semi-functional adult. Right. If there's stuff to mention in the childhood, it's usually <laughs> <Shit> sad. <laughs> So after graduating from high school, Sharon pursued a career in nursing, attending Altman uh, Altman Hospital School of Nursing and graduating in 1965. After graduation, Sharon worked at a local hospital. Two years later, Sharon decided to go back to school, this time for business at Canton Business College. And after completing three-fourths of the program, Sharon answered the call to serve. So just a little overview. She has basically lived her entire life in Canton, Ohio. Right. That's where she lived. That's where she got her education. That's where she's worked. Canton, Ohio. And for our international listeners, Ohio, I'm just going to say it, pretty unremarkable. It's in the Midwest. It's a flyover state. It's I mean, there. we're a flyover state, basically. So you know what? We, we have, have the Mall of America. We have the Mall of America. We also have the Mayo Clinic, which is kind of a big deal. Yeah, but now there's like one in Florida and Arizona too. So it's like yeah, but we're the orig- we're the original <laughs> OG Mayo Clinic bitches. <laughs> but yeah, Ohio flyover state. Lots of yeah. corn. So here's a little background on what was going on while Sharon was growing up in Canton, Ohio. When Sharon was 12 years old... In the rest of the world. (laughs) In the rest of the world, outside of Canton, Ohio. uh, When she was 12, the Vietnam War broke out. And for those of you who don't know, the Vietnam War was not a great time. Two years before that, the Korean War had just ended. So Sharon lived much of her life during wartime. This thing was technically within... The sphere of the Cold War. Yeah. 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 And uh, basically, Russia and the US used Vietnam as their like puppet to fight each other, but not really fight each other. Yeah. It was all about 
stopping communism, but it, it was, was, it was kind of... If it, you find any of this interesting, just go, like, look up the Cold War and Vietnam and, like, all the stuff. It's actually, like, fairly fascinating. Yeah. And, and really heartbreaking at the same time. As we're already alluding to, this is about the Vietnam War, but not about the Vietnam War. Yeah, I'm excited War. to hear about this. Yeah, you'll, we'll, we'll get into it. So she's growing up most of her life during wartime, which I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of people around our... Well, sorry. A lot of people around our age can relate to. Yeah. Because it, it's like kind of the same where it's kind of a war you don't think about a lot, but it's there. Yeah. And the war not everyone agrees to. Yeah. Because so, Vietnam was like very much like that. Well, in 2003 is when... Desert Storm... Desert Storm two? ended around the time we were alive. We were born. <laughs> yeah, so it was Desert Storm 2. Yeah. But it... Since 9-11, people in our age range have been acutely aware of the news and foreign affairs and war and battle and service and all that. And the fact that we still have deployed troops overseas. So. Sorry. Tangent. You're fine. This, I mean, all of this is about relating to women. Even though they're from hundreds or thousands of years before us, there are elements of these stories that we can all relate right. to. And I think that's where the heart is. Oh, yeah. You know? And we tangent a lot when we drink wine. It's okay, which is though. every episode. It's okay. So I couldn't find anything about Sharon's motivations for joining the military. Uh, many women joined out of a desire to serve their country, to help the soldiers who were being wounded and killed, to receive benefits or an education. And maybe others were just kind of looking for direction. Yeah. There are a billion reasons to join the military, all of them valid as long as you're not just trying to be a dick. That goes without saying. But, you know, I don't know why she joined, but she did. So whatever the reason, on April 18th, 1968, Sharon joined the U.S. Army Nurse Corps Reserve. That May, 2nd Lieutenant Sharon Lane began training at Fort Sam in Houston, Texas, graduating from basic training that June. Three days later, Sharon reported for duty at the Army's Fitzsimmons General Hospital Wow. <laughs> General Hospital in Denver, Colorado. Sometimes, and she's just all over the place. So she, she yeah. lived her whole life in Canton, and then she went to Houston. And now she's in and Denver. now she's in Denver. Unfortunately, it was before Denver was, like, super cool. So, <laughs> so there she worked in the tuberculosis oh. ward. Horrifying side note. I was surprised to hear that there were tuberculosis wards in the late 60s. So I looked it up. And in 2017, over 9,000 cases in the U.S. were were, were reported. And it still affects a quarter of the world's population. Because I always think... It's not as big of a thing in the U.S. Because there's, like, where I work, I work at a hospital. And... Until this year, they just stopped this year, us having to do yearly TB tests. See, when I worked at a daycare, I had to get my TB yeah, but that's test. because it was under the hospital that I worked right. at. Right, um, But yeah, so this year, unless you've been in contact with someone or tested positive in the past, you no longer have to do it yearly. Yeah. But uh, I, I always think of tuberculosis as like an early 1900s yeah. kind of and, thing. I mean, that's probably when it was worse because back then, you know, it was very communal everything. Oh, and so there was no fighting it. spread like it. the plague because it was the plague. And the only way you could treat it was to move out west to a drier climate or go to one of those sanitariums where people just kind of died. Yeah. 
you know, you didn't get to go to the south of France for this one. That's yes. it's too wet. Seriously, if I contracted TB today, could I just move to the south of France for my health? Probably yes. not. Good news, though, the UN is aiming to eradicate tuberculosis by 2030. Okay. So fingers crossed like, people in are our lifetime. People are doing shit about it. Yep. But anyway, that was, I was like, tuberculosis? So I looked it up. Yeah. I can kind of see where this is going. I don't know what weird I, honor she has, but I, I think I can maybe guess. We'll I see. think you'll be surprised. So just, just hang on. Strap in and strap on and lean back, baby, because I'm going to take good care of you. <laughs> <laughs> that was sexual. Sorry. Okay. So Sharon... It's the wine. <laughs> Sharon quickly became promoted to first lieutenant and worked in the cardiac division's intensive care unit, or ICU. Like still within the tuberculosis area? Um... I don't think so because I that's cardiac like, is heart, so you, it's different. Yeah, but you, I think it's interesting that you move from an area that's highly infectious. Like, weren't they worried about their nurses contracting it? I'm just going to trust that All they right. had some system. <laughs> In place. Or, you know, maybe it was at the time they just kind of didn't care. Like, smoking was still good for you. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, but obviously, she's working in a high-stress, intense environment, and yep. they really liked what she was doing, so she got moved to a different high-stress, high intense environment. environment. Yeah. Um, so she's working in the cardiac ICU, and she worked there until April 24th, 1969, and that's when she was ordered to report to Travis Air Force Base in California because Sharon was being sent to Vietnam. As a nurse? Yes. Yeah, I I remember vaguely, because Vietnam was one of those words I don't really teach about in school because it was so controversial, but I remember vaguely sometime in my past hearing that, yeah, they sent, they actually sent nurses and doctors to Vietnam. Oh, they, of bringing they had up. to. But a lot of times, even now in modern wars, it's they have hospitals like nearby, but not necessarily like right there. I mean, I guess they probably still have some right there, but you know, like... I would imagine they have a lot of MASH units. And actually, that's probably true. This is not in my notes, but speaking of MASH, which is one of my favorite shows, that show was about the Korean War, but it was on the air during the Vietnam War. Yep. So it was like a commentary on the doctors and nurses working in a war zone. Right. I think so. it's, yeah, it's a good show. Oh my God. Don't even get me started. I will. Right. Welcome to the MASH podcast where Emily talks about how much she loves MASH. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and listen. So to say Vietnam was complicated is an understatement. So all we need to know for the purposes of this story is that it was terrible for everyone involved. Literally. It was not a good time. So just a few days later, uh, on April 29th, Sharon arrived in Chu Lai, Vietnam at the 312th EVAC hospital where she worked in the intensive care ward. Of course. So again, she's just going from this is even more like high stress though, because you're now you're in a war torn country where you probably don't have the resources and equipment you need, but you still have to treat the same kind of patients. Well, and you're treating patients with more intense and right, like you're like oh this guy has his entire fucking arm blown off yeah yeah <laughs> it's it's not pretty um so there aren't a lot of official stats on women women who served in vietnam but it's estimated that over five thousand american women served the majority of them were nurses like sharon mm -hmm. also since the draft didn't apply to women all of them were volunteers yep. so all of the women who served in vietnam were volunteers 
Women worked as ground nurses in the Air Force and the Navy. Uh, Fun little factoid, the first members of the U.S. Navy Nurse Corps were awarded the Purple Heart after sustaining injuries during a Christmas Eve bombing. Oh, Merry Christmas. You got bombed. Yeah. Uh, Nursing during the Vietnam War was unique because it was the first major conflict to utilize helicopters to transport wounded to medical units. This allowed allowed for wounded soldiers to quickly get help, saving the lives of thousands. Because before it was like, we don't even know. If you couldn't carry them or you didn't have a medic in your unit, a lot of times you had to leave them where they were if if you thought they'd die. It's like you don't even know how far away the nearest medical help is. And infection sets in so quickly. So this way they were able to quickly get people to help. This also meant there was a steady flow of wounded for nurses to treat. According to U.S. Wings, one out of every 10 Americans who served in Vietnam were killed or wounded between shrapnel, bullet wounds, infection, burns, and more that I can only begin to imagine. Sharon's job as a nurse in the ICU couldn't have been easy. She was never bored, I'm sure. No. Sharon worked 12-hour days, five days a week, but continued to care for critically injured soldiers when she was off duty. Right. So she's like, like you never form a really bond off with duty. these people. Well, and, and where you're you know, living well, the is where they're is, being treated. You figure the other nurses or nurse, you know, depending on how many they have, is also probably working the other 12-hour shift. And so it's like, you know, sometimes with certain patients, if they need bandages changed, it's just going to be easier for you to do it yourself if you know the patient. Yeah, it's... Right? It's, it's not like you can just be like, oh, I'm going to go to the mall and forget about my patients for the weekend. Right. That doesn't happen. Yeah, like, I, as stressful as my job can be when, you know, four or five o'clock rolls around... Especially on Fridays. Oh, thank God. TGIF. TGIF. But, you know, I get to let that go. My email doesn't exist. My coworkers don't exist. Like, I get to disconnect. But you're in a fucking war zone with wounded, and they are being treated where you're camped out. How can you forget? How can you disconnect from that? And then I'm sure that messes with your head, which not even going to get into. Right. Um, American nurses also commonly volunteered in the communities around them, helping the local people. So they go into the local villages like, hey, you feeling okay? Let me check you out. So it's not just the soldiers they're helping. They're helping, like, the communities around them. Yeah, which wasn't always safe. Yeah. So despite difficult conditions, demanding work, and a constant stream of wounded, Sharon was a positive presence and adored by her patients and comrades. And, like, I I read in some places she was always just, like, this peppy, chipper lady who was like, yeah, I got this, no problem, like, just – a positive, yeah. friendly presence. Sharon had been offered transfers to other wards, but she chose to stay in the Aww. intensive care unit. Yeah. In Sharon, Vietnam? In, I'm, I assume they were other wards in Vietnam. Okay. Because I'm sure they weren't like, hey, you're really good at this. Let's send you back home. Like right. you have a tour of duty that you have to serve out. Yeah. That's what I figured, but I just wanted to check. Yeah, but they may have been less intense. Like, she's working right. in an ICU like, in a hey, war zone. we'll move you to the hospital where we send the ICU patients once they're slightly better and can travel. Once they're stable, right. right. 
So she's like, nah. (laughs) So Sharon regularly wrote letters home, sharing details about the soldiers and her care, the conditions of Vietnam, especially the heat, and military life. And actually, I learned this from Jared. Like, there's this big thing in the military about taking care of your feet and part of and like making sure they're clean and dry because especially in vietnam it's hot and moist and if you don't take care of your feet you get blisters and you can't walk and it gets well, and real like, bad real I fast know in, in the wars that there were trenches there was trench foot yes yeah that like was you're terrible it's crazy like your feet become one of your biggest assets and yeah, taking care of them is super important if you don't take care of them you're fucked if, yeah. like, if you can't run away when you get like ambush you're gonna die But so she's writing about everything and the military life and all that. In her last letter, I know, Sharon described that things had been pretty quiet and that they, quote, haven't gotten mortared in a couple of weeks now. Oh, you don't say stuff like that. Just, oh, yeah, it's been pretty quiet. We haven't had a mortar for like two weeks. So that's cool. And you... This becomes a part of your day to day. So you just kind of offhandedly say, yeah, you know, it's been a pretty, pretty easy week. We haven't gotten bombed or anything. Well, it was the one reporter I covered. That's what she said is she was like, oh, it's a nice night. There's no bombs falling. Yeah. Jesus. So um, in her typical upbeat fashion, she signed it. See you sooner. Kelly's face. So cute and so sad. Kelly says, I might start signing my text that way. Just like, I love you, see you sooner. But it would bum me out too much, I think. Yeah. For- but it's cute because it's not see you soon. It's see you yeah. sooner. It's like, oh. It's like, I love you more. You yeah. hang up first. No, you hang right. up first. That's so cute. Yep. Four days later at 605, so that's 605 in the morning, military yep. time. I know you know, but our listeners might not. Because at your hospital, you guys run on military time. When I worked at the daycare and we had parents from the clinic come in, they always did their times military style. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, pick up this 1500 hours. It really depends on like where you work in the hospital. But because I work with nurses, it's military time. Yeah. Because their shift, you know, it's easier for shifts if you run on military time. Well, and the last thing you want is someone's coming in at 6 a.m. for their surgery. It's like, oh, I thought you meant 6 p.m. Right. It's like, no. I'm at home. I'm eating Cheerios. You're not supposed to eat bizarre surgery. No. Okay. So at uh, 6.05 in the morning on June 8th, 1969, a rocket hit the 312th EVAC hospital. Yes. A rocket what i clearly know i clearly know nothing about war because i was like what in vietnam there were rockets (laughs) um yeah that's interesting yeah i learned so much doing this podcast with you sharon suffered fatal fragmentation Mm. wounds like shrapnel of shit just blowing everywhere the attack left left two dead and 27 wounded this was just one month shy of her 26th birthday. She was younger than us. Yeah. She's just a sweet baby angel. A memorial was held in Chu Lai two days later for so those. She died. She did. She Fatal was, she was fragmentation one of the two lo- wounds. Yes. Okay. 
a memorial. Ellen Jervie meant like two other than her. I know. I'm sorry. I keep interrupting. I appreciate that you're clarifying, though, because our listeners might have the same questions. So I acknowledge you and I appreciate you. Because empowered women empower women. We have to say it at least once every episode. It's like we're getting paid for it. We're not. But I'm treating (laughs) it like we are. (laughs) A memorial was held in July, two days later, for Mm. those killed in the attack, followed by a Catholic mass. Sharon was buried with full military honors at Sunset Hills Burial Park, which is such a jazzy alternative to ceremony. Burial Park. It has an air to it. funerary cult. Yes. Uh, so Kelly is going to be buried in a uh, burial park as <laughs> as head of her funerary cult. I decree it. Right. So she was she was buried back in her hometown oh. of Canton, Ohio. Good. I'm glad you got to go home. So. So this is kind of off topic of her, but 27 wounded. Did, did any of them die or was it just the two? It was. Two people were killed, 27 were okay. wounded. Th- those were like the final the, okay. stats of That's the what attack. I was wondering. Yep. So, legacy. And this is kind of a weird legacy for me, so just bear with me. Sharon was posthumously awarded the Purple Heart Bronze Star with a V device, which signifies that it was awarded for an act of valor, which I just I just learned. I didn't know what a V device meant. I thought oh, it was yeah. maybe Vietnam. But basically, she was... Um, or the Purple Heart for being, you know, injured. injured and killed in the attack. But also, she was recognized for all of her amazing service up until that right, point. Right, how many people she probably saved. Yeah. I found very conflicting statistics on the number of American women killed in Vietnam. So I mentioned at the beginning of this bit that those two gentlemen who help out with the memorial had told me about her, and they had they had mentioned Sharon... And that she had the distinction of being the only American woman killed in Viet- the Vietnam War at all, which I found was definitely not true. Uh, I found a list that detailed at least seven American women who died serving in Vietnam, one of whom started her military career in World War II. So she had served wow. in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And she died because she That's suffered insane. a stroke. She was shipped to Japan for treatment where she died. Oh, that's She insane. was like in her 50s. I, I didn't write her name down. It was kind of one of those, if I remember. But that's I was insane, like, though. that's like, yeah. you're serving in three wars in your lifetime? Damn. Maybe it was killed in combat? Because that one, having a stroke wouldn't be considered killed in combat. Right. Well, however... Sharon was the only woman who was directly killed by hostile fire. That's kind of the same. So, kind that, of. so maybe they were a little confused about that, but that is yeah. her dark distinction. Sharon was undoubtedly a wonderful person, but that's not really why I'm covering her. I looked her up because of an insane and incorrect statistic that someone randomly told me, but her life, her experiences, and her service were shared by so many women serving in Vietnam, and I feel like she really, she represents their struggles and their sacrifices because as we talked about, she grew up in middle America in the same town her whole life. She served for her own reasons. She went to Vietnam. She did her absolute best. She was a like a credit to her. Right, everyone unit, loved her, and she didn't make it home. And that's so sad. 
But I, there are so many women who I'm sure can right. identify with her story. So she was kind of my catalyst to talk yep. about women in Vietnam in general. And I'm, I'm not dismissing what you're saying. But unfortunately, Vietnam in general is probably the least talked about war, period, because it was so controversial at the time. And there are so many people that are upset by the way they acted when our soldiers came home because they did not treat them very nicely, especially Mm -hmm. people that volunteered. Um, So I know, like... Like I said, I don't think they really cover it in history classes. At least maybe they do now, but I don't remember it being covered. Or it was very like, this was the Vietnam War. Moving on. (laughs) I remember talking a bit about the Vietnam War growing up. I would, and this is just from my own anecdotal experience. It means nothing. But I would almost say the Korean War is more forgotten. Because I feel like we skipped from World World War II to Vietnam. But those two wars are both, have a lot of weight to them and like we like i said earlier the whole cold war era was just this whole thing that was russia versus the u.s and they basically used those two wars specifically as like pawns to like feel each other out and it's yeah terrible well but I, what i was getting at is if vietnam is one of the least talked about wars or even korea Women tend to be even less talked about than men in the military. Right. So, yeah, right. these women deserve recognition because they were there, too. Yeah. At this time, they probably weren't on the front lines. Not through choice. Just saying. <laughs> Most well, of the women who did serve were nurses, but there were some women in, like, combat roles. Not yeah. many, but there were some. But they didn't allow women on the front lines until, right. rec- like, recently. Yeah. Within our lifetime. Which is sad. Which is short. Yeah. (laughs) We're young. I'm still clinging to that. I got carded when I bought my wine and I was so happy because normally I whip out my ID immediately like, I'm not going to give you the opportunity to not card (laughs) me. You're carding me regardless. But he asked my ID. I I come with my husband and he's older than me and he looks older than me and no one ever asks questions. Yeah. But, you know, her story is definitely not the only story of women in Vietnam, but I thought it was uh, a really, it was a great opportunity for me to get more into it. Yeah, it was, and it was, it was a good story. But it was, in a way, she was almost so average you know like what she did was incredible i'm not discrediting it but it her her story is shared by so many average yeah um i've got two more things for my legacy so i'm just gonna (sighs) burn through them real quick three thousand and ninety four service members from ohio were killed in the vietnam war that's a lot 63 of them including sharon were from canton ohio so yeah I, I actually found those statistics. That's, I was very that's proud of myself. really interesting. Yeah, but um, sh- I think there is a book. I didn't write down the title. I think there is a book on Sharon Lane, and I'd be really interested to read more in depth about her because, again, she has this dark distinction, this kind of honor uh, question mark, but her, her story is shared by so many, and so this right. was kind of my little foyer into – you know, a tribute to women in the military, particularly in Vietnam. So thank you for your service. Thank you for your sacrifice. And God, I hope things get better. I had a phone call with the VA that was very frustrating. So I hope things get better. So 
Aww. So that was that was a little bit of a downer. That was a little bit of a downer, <laughs> but, like a good one. Like, it was like kind, a bittersweet downer. Yeah, kind of like this wine. Oh, it all comes back. Right. So now this is the time where Kelly and I tried to salvage our emotional states by saying what we're thankful for. See, but my thankful for is also what I cheers about. So I'm done. Okay. Well, I'm I skipping will, mine. <laughs> I will go first. Um. I'm really thankful. So Kelly and I last weekend did the suicide prevention awareness walk. Out of the darkness. Out of the darkness. And this is our third year Finally doing it. Finally joined my team on like Tuesday after the walk. I did? Yeah. They must have like added you in. What? But, oh, you know, probably because I filled yeah. out my thing. <laughs> but I was like, huh. All right, then. <laughs> I work somewhere where we build websites, and I could not even appropriately register for a walk. <laughs> but it's w- this is our third year doing it, and mm-hmm. it's always such a profoundly powerful experience. And the thing I really want to call out, so they have color-coded beads yep. of, I don't know how many, like 12 different colors or something. And each color represents something like, I've lost a parent to suicide. I've lost a child, a family member. I struggle myself, first responder slash military, all those different things. Which I swear was new this year. I don't remember seeing last year. I like that. And I really like that. Though. Yeah. Because it's, it's a special kind of hell dealing with that kind of it trauma. Really is. But basically, everyone is wearing different colored beads to signify how they are connected to right. suicide. And it's all, it's wearing something so intimate and so powerful around your neck. And you can immediately, like, See, identify, identify people. Yep, what and people you are know, going through. You basically, by looking at someone, know the worst thing about their life. Right. And it brings people together. And I always cry a little. <laughs> well, and it, it's, it's a different kind of feeling because you can have those connections where you look at someone and they look at you and you see each other's beads and you don't have to say anything to each other. Right. There's just that acknowledgement when you kind of look at each other that, you know, I'm sorry for what you have or are going through, you know, and I'm here too. It's it's intimate, it's beautiful, it's emotional, and then um, it, it's really powerful. So, Kelly, I love that your your parents came down and your dad yeah. almost ran some people over on his motor <laughs> scooter. Like <laughs> he you know, he didn't it, fall this year. <laughs> Last year, he did go off the trail Yeah, he tried to, bit. like, pass someone, and then his motor scooter fell. It was a thing. But, you know, people raise money for the American Society for Suicide Suicide Prevention Prevention and Awareness. Um, And it's really cool. If you have a local Out of the Darkness walk, I highly recommend you attend or at least donate money. Another good organization is NAMI, N-A-M-I. They're the National American Mental Health Institute. I don't remember. But that's more all-encompassing, I think, for mental health. Right. Than it is just suicide. But that's, I know they do walks as well. So if you don't have an out of the darkness walk, you could always check with the NAMI people. And I know, you know, I struggle with self-harm, suicidal ideation, all the all the fun stuff that just haunts my brain. You know, that's, that's the underside current of our podcast that we yeah. just don't talk about because we both deal with it. Well, and it's, we mention it. I mean, I don't think we're really that's closeted true. We're not like, about. We're not like, no, I never feel anything. No, I've totally never wanted to just ram my car into a wall or anything. No. But, you know, it's. It's a really cathartic experience. And hey, if you're listening, if you struggle with this, you're not alone. We get it. We feel you. If you ever need to reach out, um, 
please do. There's the suicide hotline. There's the text number. Unfortunately, I do not have those written in front of me because I'm garbage. But please, you are not alone. Your life is worth living. And please reach out because we love you. And there are so many people who love you. So I'm thankful we did that together. First of all, there's an online chat as well. Um, The suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Um, you can text CONNECT to 741741. That's the crisis text line. Um, and also, if you go to suicidepreventionlifeline.org, who is who I think who hosts the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, or one of them, um, like I said, you can talk to them online. And they also have specific resources, like if you're a youth, if you're trying, if you're struggling with other loss, if you're LGBTQ+, disasters native americans attempt survivors they have like more resources specifically if you're facing um something like that veterans so like they have their general number and then but they also have resources for if you're facing something specific yeah and even if you're not struggling with this if you have someone in your life and statistically you probably do who is struggling with these issues please look up the best ways to help them because telling them to get over it or exercise more or or telling them that other people have it worse are all the worst possible things you can do so seriously be proactive because you never know when someone's going to come to you and be like I feel like I want to die. Right. Don't so, don't blow them off. Listen to them. And I'm, we're not saying you are, but you know, sometimes people say that and they may sound like they're joking and you know, they're not. It's a subtle cry for help. Yeah. Check in on your friends too cuz we do not always reach out when we really need it. I'm so fortunate. Here's what, what the other thing I'm thankful for, Kelly. I'm so thankful that I can text you whenever just being like I really feel fucking awful and I just need to talk about it and I know you're there for me. Yeah. And I know I did that last week or something too. And yeah, it's nice. It's nice just knowing that. You can always email us. We're really good about emailing back. Yep. So um thank you so much for listening. I know this episode ran a little long, but hopefully it was worth it. Um please like us on Facebook, whining about history, Instagram, W A H Pod. Twitter, W-A-H underscore pod. Um, our website is whiningabouthistory.com. It moved recently, so if you were following it before, you might have to go to it again and resubmit your information because we were hosting it through one thing and now we're hosting it somewhere else. It's better now. <laughs> um, and also feel free to email us, whiningabouthistory at gmail.com. And, you know, we'll write back or if you just want to talk and don't want a response, just to blurb your feelings out there in the world we'll we'll read please give us your suggestions for women you'd like to hear us cover if you have a i know we didn't do a say our name say their name this segment but if you want someone to get a shout out whether it's a woman who's just killing it right now or anyone who's killing it or even like your mom was really awesome this week and you want her to get a little shout out Send that to us. We will read it because right. we love the attention. You can just like attention. play the little, you know, maybe not play the sweary parts, but you can just play that little bit for your mom. Like, look, mom, I got you on a podcast. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, thank you so much for listening to Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.